0: Welcome to the Brookwood and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh, assistant head of Brookwood, and I'm here today with Andre Francois, Lower School Plus Six director of Brookwood.
1: Hello, happy to be here.
0: And David Bose, theology chair and college counselor of Brookwood.
2: Hello, also glad to be here.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Today we're going to discuss a book of essays by the Hungarian cultural critic and professor Laszlo Foldenyi, called Dostoevsky reads Hegel in Siberia and bursts into tears um, which may have some relationship to our reading of this book. Um, (laughs) Hi, David. Um, so I thought I would give a little bit of background about the book and then we can begin with a discussion of perhaps the title essay and then range around as, as we wish. Um, so overall, this book emerges as a critique of enlightenment, rationalism and the hegemony of that rationalism and a discussion of what's lost as a result. Fuldeny frequently uses romantic thinkers and texts to present an alternative to the hyper rational. I think um, he, his use of Dostoevsky, which is um, sort of post romantic, right, uh, is especially useful because um, Dostoevsky is on that cusp between romanticism and maybe modernism, um, occupying a place near psychological realism, and he's a philosophical novelist. Um, but Fuldenyi, um discusses lots of romantic authors and artists, as well as some figures of the 20th century. One line I thought was particularly pithy begins with the Descartes, I think, therefore I am, as the rationalist line that also has within it the rationalist dangers. And Fuldeny posits um, the I am thought of, therefore I am, as a key alternative. In various essays, Fuldeny talks about Dostoevsky, yes, but also about Mary Shelley, Artaud, um, the painting Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog and a lot of romantic visual art in general, Blake comes up a lot, Canetti, Kleist, and on and on. Um, he shows a broad range of knowledge and a good mix of humanities touchstones that the reader is sure to know one or more of, um, any of the examples at any given point, and then the reader can also follow and learn something new. And I found that to be the case, that I knew some things that I didn't know some things, and I was able to um, have enough to hang on to even while I learned something new. So another idea that comes up um, in a pattern is the notion of the mass, the multitude, or the crowd. And that has to do with the problem of the loss of individual identity and the loss of connection to the divine. Um, The title essay gives us the story of Dostoevsky's exile in Siberia in 1854. Uh, The story of Dostoevsky's exile is interesting and really key to a lot of what we talk about when we talk about Dostoevsky's work. Uh, Would you like to talk about that, David?
2: Uh, uh, sure, very briefly. Uh, my understanding is that he, wa- he and some uh, socialists got uh, arrested and sentenced to death and then at the last minute uh, he was pardoned but exiled and sent to the Siberian work camps uh, in which I believe he had a very uh, profound conversion mm-hmm. and then became a writer and uh, developed his own kind of thoughts as a Christian writer afterwards. Culminating in the greatest novel of all time, The Brothers Karamazov, <laughs> which is featured on the very first Brookwood Life of the Mind podcast.
0: So Dostoevsky is in Siberia and he makes friends with Wrangel, who's a young prosecutor. And, um, and then they read a variety of things and talk about um, what, what comes up there. Um, reviewers have argued that fuldenyi offers a somewhat simplified and maybe overly secularized view of Hegel. Um, I would say that um, while not academic, the Hegel material relates to the way later people use Hegel as a sort of engine of rationality. So whether I mean, I think it's this comes up a lot actually when when um, when popular sources talk about academic texts or more complex texts, there's kind of an oversimplification that occurs. But then that simplification is sort of what carries in the culture, and sort of, I mean, and sort of, uh, Hegel becomes kind of an emblem of this rationality that um, that can then be talked about. And um, the Hegel idea in the book seems to be kind of a self referential system, um, an idea that suffering can be eliminated. And the critique is that Hegel um, pushes us into chaos, uh, because the loss of the transcendent leads us into that chaos, and we're left with ourselves. I don't know, what did you all think about the um, the title essay? Andrea, what's your um, reaction, I guess, to start with?
1: Well, I think it is kind of important what you bring up, that Hegel as Hegel is different than Hegel as Hegel in culture. Mm-hmm. Because I know very, very little about Hegel as Hegel, but I live in the culture that he produced and that comes down out of, yes, how it is summed up in in what... I cannot say his name, this Hungarian gentleman presents to us. Um, so in that case, I didn't find very much to argue with him about that there. Mm. Um, I I wish that he had given a little more of Dostoevsky's answer mm. to Hegel's worldview. I mm. and, and I think it is really interesting that he does talk about how dostoevsky is separated Mm. that hegel separates him out and then dostoevsky just takes that he's like great i don't want to be a part of what you're doing What you're doing kind of stinks i'm gonna do something over here um because i think that would have been a like a good response to what hegel's project ultimately wrought in the world mm-hmm. um but again i don't maybe know enough about hegel to really quite understand mm.
0: david yeah david what was your
2: uh i was a little confused reading it um my understanding of hegel is not super detailed uh so he, I believe, is the thesis, antithesis, synthesis guy. So yes. I think you definitely see that in the culture with this this myth of like the march towards progress, and like everything's getting better, and there's like this utopian golden age just around the corner, and we're almost gonna meet get there. Uh, which, uh, if that's what he's talking about, and that's a huge problem, then I I agree with that. Uh, but yeah, I I also agree there wasn't a lot of showing how Dostoevsky, I think, adequately proposes a way of thinking that gets you out of the trap. Although I also agree that Dostoevsky was definitely critical of the European culture he grew up in, Uh uh, or European culture that was, in his mind, influencing Russia in a very negative way. Yeah. Um,
0: So in the essay, it seems like um, Hegel is given as excluding Siberia, Asia, Africa from history. Mm. And there's a kind of value on seeing history from quote the outside, right? And so the idea is that Dostoevsky, in exile, has a different view um, as somebody who is who's you know looking in from the outside, and and of course um, has that reaction to what ends up getting um, labeled as that hyper-rationalism of Hegel. Hmm. Uh, So you have that as kind of a a starting place in ways. Um, It seems like this kind of idea, this kind of reaction against the hyper-rationalist in Dostoevsky leads us to some ideas that uh, that then become interesting on their own. And that has to do with um, the nature of Dostoevsky's writing um, and i think too especially in the essays that occur early in the book um the the religious aspect of what full offers um the whole you would expect based on the beginning that the whole thing would be sort of you know we're concerned about this kind of hyper rationalist view and the answer to that view is the transcendent um or in particular, in these early essays, I would say Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are—it um, seems like in later essays, it, um, the idea of the divine or the transcendent changes somewhat. But um, but I think that that's um, that's an interesting that's an interesting piece that Foldenius' answer, um, I think, corresponds to a great degree what say you know a theological answer might be.
2: Yeah. Do you think, do you think he's looking at how Romanticism? Like in the later essays, like fails to adequately fix or solve, like the drama of like modernity, and like Cartesian dualism, and all the kind of and all the wreckage that Hegel brought. Or do you think he like thinks of Romanticism as kind of what like because it seems like everything he says about Romanticism is just terrible, (laughs) like in terms in terms of how the destruction and or maybe. I mean, I'm not familiar with the timelines, but when he starts talking about death uh, in the one essay on, like, um, Kleist dies and dies and yeah. dies, and the other essays um, later on in the book. Well, like uh, the romantic
0: uh, fragment, fragment idea, too. Okay. that I um, think that, that's a place where he's definitely critical of, um, of romanticism.
2: So let's give a quick
0: overview of the whole of the book, so that listeners can sort of follow. Um, in the preface, he um, talks about de Chirico, which is like really interesting, um, the visual artist, because it's a kind of surrealist um, beam that runs through all of this, where you've got a lot of this um, 20th century kind of sensibility. Um, the idea that the banishing of myth is itself a myth. Is something that comes up in the preface, and I think that that's familiar to us then he has um, a piece about mass and spirit which is kind of about order and disorder and then about um, crowds and um, the multitude um, you've got a little bit about the Tower of Babel you've got something about the devil you've got happiness and melancholy you've got fear and freedom you have the romantic fragment, you have something called only that which never ceases to hurt stays in the memory you should talk about that um, we've got sleep in the dream, the, the national, national, the natural scientist in reverse, which is about wander above the sea of fog, and then the business, business about Kleist, the business about Artaud, and then finally there's an essay about Canetti um, and um, and his his work. So you have this sort of span of of pieces, and then um, the reason to bring this up is um, to talk a little bit about where. Um, Whereful you kind of touches down, and the question is, does he valorize romanticism? The answer is, um, the Enlightenment rationalism is a problem. The romantic answer to the problem of hyperrationality is um, is not a full answer, right? Is not a satisfactory answer overall, mm-hmm. um, and then you see um, you see different texts treated. Um, along the way and probably like the chapter chapter about the romantic fragment fragment, um, is a good place to think about um, how foldaini finds romanticism to have some shortcomings right so So the idea idea is it's not about the aesthetic of the fragment or um, or like the aesthetic aesthetic of ruins or something like that that. but rather it's about like what happens when you have have the fragment and you take it as the whole this is where you get that weird image of the giant hedgehog Yes, (laughs)
1: which was very odd, but kind of like soothing in its own way. I'm like, I know what a hedgehog looks like. This is great. I know something in this book. (laughs) But
0: But then it talks about like how we see the fragment as like the the Mary Shelley Shelley monster, monster, right? The the, Frankenstein's monster as um, this thing that's um, that's put together from a variety of pieces and is um, is problematic in all kinds of ways. So what happens when you have the desacralization of the body? and sort of like how that, um, how that relates to um, the problems that he continues to talk about, the, about the, instrum- um, the instrumentalization of the body, um, and so on.
3: So my answer, I think, is that he also, also finds romanticism
0: problematic, mm-hmm. although it's an, it, maybe there are elements in romanticism that answer the problem. And maybe that's also why he pushes forward then to Dostoevsky and then mm. to the figures in the 20th century. Like he's still looking for an answer to this problem. Yeah. And mean, um, isn't able to find it in a variety of different idioms, right? And so you have like the romantic way of looking at things, kind of an approach or a kind of language. And then you have um, these other pieces that follow and how they are or are not really satisfactory. Or maybe they're satisfactory in like tiny bits, um, but there's not an overall good answer. Um, so, so when, when Mr. Bose, Bose walked, into walked into the, uh, the parsonage to have this conversation, the first thing he said was like, wow, this book is bleak. <laughs> Can I talk a little bit about that? Because I think that, that I mean, think I think that, that that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I'm edging up on, right? right? That there, there aren't, yeah. that he, he doesn't, doesn't offer a complete, complete answer. Like, we, we want an answer. Yeah. Um, and we're not finding or it.
2: Or we want him to find the answer, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I got, part of the problem is I don't understand how he's using terms too, like. Because he talks about metaphysics a lot,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and but I don't know what he means by metaphysics. Uh, do you guys have any idea of what he means? Because that can p- oh, answer the question of like why. Because like it's bleak because there's just, it's a very despairing book, and I, I do want to talk about like the very last line at some point, because um, like that actually is like a very bleak in one sense, but very accurate in a, in another sense. Mm-hmm. But I I'm just not sure what he means when he says metaphysics
0: yeah, yeah. i mean it's also like I'm, i have trouble, trouble with this book in a, li- a little bit because, because i'm trying, trying to, to tell who his audience is mm-hmm. too i mean i think that um that we we hold him to a standard mm-hmm. of like using his terms one way if he's or in ways that he announces like if it's going to be if it's going to be multiple he's going to announce it somehow um because we're expecting it to be kind of an academic treatment but yet, it's, it's a collection of essays created over time. Mm-hmm. So it may be that, like for the purpose of one essay, metaphysics means the transcendent, and in another essay, it means like the philosophical. And so, I mean, it may be that it moves around um, essay by essay. Like the Dostoevsky essay is from 1997, okay. and then there are many essays that are much more recent.
1: Hmm. I did not realize that there was such a time difference in, mm. in when these are written. That actually should have jumped out at me that maybe this, he was thinking over things long-term. So that is very helpful. It doesn't give me any more answers,
0: but yeah. it's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that, I don't know that the, the book is, the is arranged, arranged in chronological, chronological order. No. No. Okay. Um, so, so that's, so, but um, that, that could, could also, also add to our confusion. confusion. Um, but, but there, there is, is I mean, there is kind of a wide, of wide ranging search that seems to be going on over the course of the collection. collection. Do you, you want, want to jump, jump to, to the end, end and talk, talk about, about that last sentence and see if it, where it takes us, it if it takes it us backwards?
2: Sure. So the last sentence of the book, he says, um, the, the final objective of the book. So it's this book by Kinetti. Uh, what's the called? Crowds and Power. Uh, and the, the final objective of the book, Crowds and Power, is to accuse. It is an indictment against what both Emil Cheren and Canetti simultaneously referred to as flawed creation. So I think like that, and he also talks about Gnosticism a little bit, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. And I'm wondering what he means by Gnosticism. You need something Um, different from what you mean. I'm not sure because he's. I think he might mean what. We typically understand Gnosticism to mean of like, uh, you know, an, an anti-materialist worldview. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, if you don't have the Book of Genesis, this is a very flawed creation, and like the the, because it's not supposed to be like this. But you won't you don't get that if you don't have an understanding of how like God, as unchanging, God as. Intending man to live with him for eternity in paradise, and then man screwing it all up and bringing with him sin and death. And so then you, like, there is something that we experience that we're not supposed to experience according to, like, the internal plan of God. And so that is a problem. And it seems like the post Christian West has been grappling with how do we solve the problem of sin and death, Uh, but they don't actually have the answer of the risen lord so they actually can't adequately fix the problem Mm -hmm. Uh, and it seems like that's the problem throughout the entire book is you have people struggling with death people struggling with pain people struggling with this desire for the transcendent these experiences these glimpses of the infinite the ineffable but yet not knowing what to do with it
0: yeah Yeah, i mean he he seems to locate locate the cultural death death of of god mm -hmm. um in the enlightenment and, and so, so, if you do, do that, that, then the, then, the then the whole book, book is, about is about that. that. I mean, go ahead. Well, he does
1: say he says in the preface, the belief in the omnipotence of reason that illuminates all phenomena, similar to the sun, is the great inheritance of the Enlightenment. Mm. And I forgot that he said that as I was reading some stuff. It would have been more helpful if I would remembered mm. that he said that. And nothing less was at stake than capturing the positions previously occupied by god yeah so i think i think Mm -hmm. david's right like he is focusing on the enlightened the inheritance of the enlightenment as the attempt to banish suffering through reason right Mm. and that that has not that project has been yeah a failure or just wildly. maybe not working so great. <laughs> so
0: he's looking at a variety of answers to it. Like yes. one answer is the romantic answer. So if we are valorizing emotion and nature, um, then does that solve it? No. Okay. So then we, um, we look at um, somebody like Artaud, who is interested in maybe a kind of mystical idea of theater and kind of embodying as opposed to thinking about ideas right mm-hmm. and is that adequate is that is the theater of cruelty the answer mm-hmm. hmm you know no so oh i there, hope not it, so, yeah. There's, yeah. so there's a the variety of of different ways and i think that's his interest in kennedy as well it's sort of like here's another answer it's, and so he's interested i mean i do get that he seems to be interested in all of this in a kind of um, Keatsian sort of negative capability kind of way, or in a kind of Rilke, and he does talk about Rilke a good bit, but about the um, the kind of opening up, right, I mean, which I associate with like the, the Rilke, I mean, this is kind of an easy Rilke idea of um, the questions themselves, right, that the search and, um, and the openness is, um, is important. And then, I mean, I think he wants an answer, but he's not finding it in these various places where he's looking. Hmm. So, Andrea, you had a quote that you wanted to um, offer for this discussion.
1: So, um, I actually found a lot very quotable about this, but in his, Dostoevsky reads, Hegel in Siberia and Bursts into Tears essay. Whoever insists on viewing the world rationally at all costs eventually falls victim to irrationality. And such people always do so more quickly and more visibly than those whose primary wish is to live freely. Now, I have no idea what he means by freedom, which Mm. I underlined like 14 times asking, what do you mean by freedom? Mm. But I think that in that, he is obliquely or like subtly pointing to a very similar critique that Dostoevsky makes throughout Mm -hmm. multiple novels, that Mm -hmm. this insistence that the human being is only the mind and is only rational is, I mean, in the possessed? I mean, it ends with the only option is suicide. Mm -hmm. So, and even that is exposed as, like, an irrational act. Mm -hmm. Um, So I... To give him more credit as a writer and me a little less credit as a reader, I do think he is pointing us towards more answers than he's overtly giving us. Yeah, I, I'm perfectly willing to
0: see the failure as my own. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that we're also given pieces. Like, we're, yeah. I don't think that we're given Faldenius' sort of coherent mm-hmm. thought. Like, we're given like these little moments. In his thinking Mm -hmm. and that's gonna keep us from being able to see precisely what's happening Uh, he's written a ton but not Mm -hmm. a lot of it's been translated into English I
1: can maybe see why that's true so (laughs) it's difficult it's just it's it's difficult to it's difficult to follow and it's I think especially difficult being Eastern European and not Western European. yeah yeah which is Mm. just a completely different thing for us Mm-hmm. when he talks about romanticism and William Blake I'm like great I know those guys this is wonderful and then he talks about German philosophers and like bet, lost me, lost yeah. me again <laughs>
0: and similar when he was talking about nature and mm-hmm. how um how one you know becomes um like that one um, the ego disappears and you know I'm a transparent eyeball mm-hmm. sort of idea yeah. emerges but he never says Emerson Yeah, he he does like all this stuff. And in my mind, I have all this, you know, sort of American romanticism going on, where I make a further connection. And uh, he just doesn't make and same thing with some of the 20th century stuff. We have some American poets who do a lot of things that relate directly to what he's talking about, but he doesn't mention them. So I think that there's a kind of Venn diagram of references there, right? Um, I mean, like our knowledge of you know, uh, of Goethe is going to be different from a mm-hmm. German's knowledge of, of Goethe, certainly a Hungarian's knowledge of Goethe. You know, so oh, definitely. And so I think that there's a, a kind of difference in reference there, too.
1: I think that Venn diagram, though, might look a little like a serial killer <laughs> of, like, all the things coming in and out together. But, I mean, I think I think in what he says about the desire to live purely rationally yeah, is is underpinning so many things for so many people who are unhappy Mm -hmm. and are unclear about why they're unhappy yeah if you uh, have if you live in cartesian dualism and don't know it Mm -hmm. there's no way out yeah like you can't you can't you don't know you're in the cave yeah um which i still don't understand but you know, that's a different conversation. Yeah, that's a different conversation.
0: <laughs> no, but also the um, the lack of open, uh, the lack of openness mm-hmm. to suffering, uh, mm-hmm. or to melancholy. I mean, so there's the essay called Happiness and Melancholy, uh, which treats some of that sort of um, differentiates between melancholy and anxiety, and certainly talks about depression as a you know a disease that should be treated. Uh, but there's this I mean, but there's mm-hmm. a kind of useful and productive melancholy that the rationalist pushes away, um, and that the and also the culture's um, perpetual insistence on happiness, in mm-hmm. air quotes, um, mm-hmm. and sort of what that is and how that's maybe different from a more authentic happiness.
1: I actually thought of the essays that I read, because I didn't read three of them, um, I actually thought that was one of his stronger essays. Mm-hmm. I think his talking about melancholy, and David and I talked about this a little in the hall the other day, that If you like approach melancholy as a recognition of yourself as a finite being within the context of an infinite being and how fragile you are, Mm -hmm. then that is a genuinely productive experience because that does open you up to greater empathy for other people, a greater gratitude for what you have been given. And then if happiness is also to see yourself as a finite being within an infinite context and to see the grandeur of that, to see the ability to participate in God's creation is actually an unbelievable gift that we in no way deserve. I think those two things are like amazing things to experience. And when people do think of melancholy as just sorrow, they close themselves off from all of those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. happiness is just pleasure, you're also closed off from those opportunities. Right. So I, I thought that essay was one of his strongest. I really did like it.
0: Mm. The, um, I'm trying to think about the, Volgini um, says, if happiness is crystallized into a motto, then it must be realized at all costs, even at the cost of the unhappiness of others. Uh, even believers in private joy must be sacrificed at the altar of collective joy. So he's also connecting it with um, sort of like the culture at large as well, and mm. talking about the—I um, mean, this kind of um, false or superficial, you know, happiness in contrast to something that's that's more um, that's more meaningful. Um, And then to differentiating between melancholy, um, he says, melancholy also helps us to see our lives are nested within a much larger coherence. Um, It seeks to deprive human beings of the, oh, sorry, Uh, I think I have the wrong reference. If a given culture does everything in its power to banish melancholy, then not only does it deal with melancholy um, in an irresponsible fashion, it also seeks to deprive human beings of the experience of transcendence surpassing their own lives, depriving them of the perception that humans, no matter how great, no matter how able, are anything but omnipotent beings. The persistent lack of transcendent experience causes unhappiness, and every attempt to stop up this um, this lack with our command to be happy, no matter what variations, con- confirming universal access to material goods is futile.
1: And I actually think that is a really relatable moment, because if you think about the things that people insist will make you happy, mm-hmm. they are the things that make you the most miserable. Right. If anybody is honest, they hate going to Disneyland. It's a terrible <laughs> place. Oh, man. There it's was loud, good... it's crowded, so there it's was expensive. A, there
2: was a great video this lady posted, like adding up how much money she spent and yep. all the time she wasted <laughs> at Disney World, like just like the other week. And it was like ridiculous amount of money to stand in line to ride like one or two rides a day. $800 on three lightsabers, plus extra money to <laughs> ship them, because, like, TSA something. I don't know. But you're right, yeah. Like, all these things just make you unhappy. And I was thinking about the, um, like, if you get rid of that melancholy, uh, you also, like, the, the human person cannot recognize himself as he truly is, as a creature. Yeah. Who, like who like you said, receives everything as gift. Like, even the very act of being mm-hmm. is a gift. And so... But then, if you recognize it as gift, then that actually can cause room for happiness to be there because that's like you—you you almost have to recognize your lack before you can recognize what you have. Mm. And if you don't have that melancholic experience, how he uses the term? Because I looked up melancholic, I was like, let me see under the dictionary like, He's not using it this way. You know? and then I'm like, okay, but I see. But then we talked, and I was like, okay, and now I get how he's using melancholy, and it's kind of that awareness, yeah, of your need.
1: Yes, yeah. I think people hear melancholic and they hear Hamlet. Okay. they're like sad sack walking around with his like little skull. Yeah. You're just like, no, not it's not what anybody means. Yeah, well, so. I mean, it's more, it's more
0: like, I mean, he he mentions the Keats, um, the Ode mm-hmm. Melancholy. Um, and he says, for melancholia indicates the intense presence of the transcendent, just as happiness does, but accompanied by other omens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this idea. To, and also the idea that happiness, um, the, so the, the inner God is resurrected in such moments of happiness, he says. It approaches. In moments of melancholy, this God seems to dissipate, um, is on the verge of departure, yet remains animate enough so that it, um, his effect nonetheless makes itself felt. Uh, so there's this idea of approaching and um Mm. and like beginning to dissipate on the verge of departure and that gives i mean it seems like that gives a kind of texture to existence Mm -hmm. um and helps us to remember um kind of the fullness of existence as you all were saying yeah Mm. yeah
2: yeah i also have to remember the way he's using rational is not how like a Thomist would use rational ah. so. i don't think he's using anything, how a <laughs> yeah. would use anything because like i'm i'm you know like it's it's like yeah you have to remember that like the way western man understood reason was like fundamentally changed at the enlightenment uh-huh. you know and like there was a sense or, uh, or maybe okay. not west like i'm like the, so you could have you like
1: explain that a little bit more because right. again i am not a philosopher i slept through most of my classes so
2: well so I I, I do want to there was a Chesterton quote where like Chesterton talks about the man who only seeks to look, see things through reason will like go insane. Yeah. But Thomism like really shows um like if you have this adequate grasp of what reality is, like reason can get you pretty darn far mm-hmm. into like understanding reality. So for for like the Thomist, if I would like try and answer like what is reason, it's the human's power to come to know truth. By abstracting from experience and senses to more universal principles, okay, right? So I for,
1: really needed that in an exam once. Because,
2: <laughs> like, for because a Thomist, right, is an is you know Aristotle says, right, all knowledge comes first through the senses. So there's a recognition that you, like, you have to first have experience before you can have knowledge, right? And so. Then you can actually say, okay, I have like all these three people who look kind of the same. And then you say, okay, they must be the same kind of thing. then the more you inquire into it, you can figure out, okay, what is their nature? And you can like start to grasp further and further and further truths. But you can also see, right, like the, like Pieper gives an example in his book on faith on how you have like two scientists and one of them has access to the super high-tech microscope and the other one doesn't have access to a super high-tech microscope. And so he's, like, telling his friend about what he sees. And he's like, you know those, like, pollen granules and what they look like? Well, this is actually what they look like. And he says, like, isn't it more reasonable? And don't you open up for yourself a wider scope of knowledge and you actually know more about reality if you can trust the testimony of another. Mm -hmm. And you can actually, like, believe. And so in the Thomistic tradition, in the Aristotelian tradition, right, because the quote that starts it is Aristotle, he who wishes to know must first believe. And so in, this, in the older rational tradition, and that's why I actually like, don't like how we talk about Western culture. Western culture hmm. is, I'm gonna say this, the Catholic culture. Like it is inseparable from the Catholic church. I'm not saying Catholic culture is Western culture. I'm saying Western culture is Catholic culture because Catholic culture is broader. But post-Catholic West is not the West of Greece and Rome. Mm-hmm. And so because there was that fundamental rupture with Descartes, Okay. Uh, where man started looking inward. And you were talking about this earlier, where you said, like, man is inside of himself and can't get out.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And whereas it began, like, the West was like, man looks outside, right? Yeah. He starts in wonder and he sees how great creation is. And then mm-hmm. he can actually understand himself. Mm-hmm. But in, so that's like the rationalism of the rationalists is actually, at the beginning, irrational, right. which is why mm-hmm. it ends in irrationality and despair. Okay, so
1: that's okay. helpful. <laughs> hmm, there's a lot going on in reason. Yeah, or in some cases, not a lot going on. Them. So, <laughs> what other
0: places that you all wanted to um, to sort of land a little bit? Um, I'm I mean, I'm interested in some of the stuff he does with um, with visual art, um, but I don't know that um, that we need to. I mean, I don't know. What, what do you want to talk about with regard to? Um, I thought
1: that was really interesting. Where he. Um, now I can't exactly remember which one it is. Uh, where he's talking about the scary painting with oh, the Fusilli. people, the yes. nightmare. Yeah. Uh, yes, oh, I had to look movie. up what that is, and oh, there's yeah. actually two of them. There's one that's a painting, and one that's um, an etching. And in the one in the etching, the horse is like much more present and oh. freaking out. And in the painting, the woman is like the main focus, and the horse is kind of like away. So this
0: is Henry Fusely, um, Fuseli, F U S E L I. The painting is called Nightmare. Apparently, the etching is also called Nightmare. Yes. Not, I wasn't aware of the etching.
1: Oh, Google had many things to tell me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then some questions about that. But, but why yeah, I'm and so that.
0: he, um, so he treats that. As, I mean, the idea is that without the metaphysical, again, whatever that is, but the transcendent, without something beyond the rational, right, uh, the body can become the prey of fantasies of power. And that's where we see that image. Um, and we get there through, um, oh, my goodness, through a winding path. Uh, So the essay is, um, Only That Which Never Ceases to Hurt Stays in the Memory. Again, this is a place where I'm like, yo, Emily Dickinson, remorse is memory awake, right? And that, you know, that's not on his radar at all. Um, Instead, here's this Nietzsche.
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) And some Kafka.
0: Yeah, well, the, the Nietzsche, the Kafka, the Rilke, I mean, so we turn the corner on that. So, yeah. And then Lord Chesterfield. Um, so we get the um, we get Lord Chesterfield, and um, and then this series of paintings that um, that seems to have to do with the physical, you know, the the idea of two bodies, one is physical, the other societal. So the Lord Chesterfield business is um, a series of letters to his son about how to behave, and um, the essay begins with Polonius, um, right? The idea of um, Polonius' advice, and, um, and then goes on to Lord Chesterfield as sort of the, um, the really elaborate, really extreme example of this, um, the, the very sort of granular direction that he gives to his son about how to behave in public. And then that leads to the idea of the two bodies, one physical, the other societal.
1: Yes. And I thought... I thought where he started was so interesting of his very particular experience of seeing a Hungarian woman in Hungary with this English Mm. tattoo that he was very convinced she did not know what it meant. (laughs) I wish he had asked her. I was really interested in her. I was like, does she know what it means? What was she thinking? it's a very well, interesting
3: tactic.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting fishes. phrase to put on your body if you understand what it means, though.
1: Which is, I think, <laughs> why he's very convinced she does not. Yeah. That yeah. In, if you really do know what that means, you would never do that. <laughs> um, and You mean like, like in context in Hamlet? Yes. Where yeah. yes yeah. Uh, who
0: Polonius is? Yeah. Who
1: Polonius is, why you would take that advice. Um, all, the, all the things. How the play ends. <laughs> so the tattoo
2: is "To Thine Own Self Be True." Just for our, our oh, listeners. oh yes, yeah.
1: for our listeners. Um,
2: and the context is basically don't spend money like, that you don't <laughs> that you don't have.
1: So I thought that was just a really interesting way for him to start. Mm-hmm. Of, and I think it is mm-hmm. like points to his more Aristotelian understanding of reason, as you just explained it. He had this very concrete experience, and through there, all of these other experiences start popping up. And I lost my train of thought. It'll come back. Oh, yes, that he doesn't outright say that the insistence on people tattooing themselves to such a like great degree is an uh, like a, a manifestation of how they don't understand how their bodies are being used. Mm-hmm. I mm. I wish he had kind of brought that back a little bit at the end. Mm. Because he does, he goes through this like very kind of step by step of like this is what happened to the body as a result of Enlightenment hyper rationalization and then romantic backlash of hyperemotionalism. Mm-hmm. And the body just gets more and more and more destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. And it becomes
2: more and more an accessory. Yes. Mm-hmm. Until
1: it becomes entirely decorative. Mm-hmm. And Kafka sees that as the ultimate destruction. That they are so disconnected from their body they don't know about it until it's being destroyed through tattooing.
2: Hmm. Um, Imagine if Kafka was around today.
1: I think he would just, I think he'd be in Siberia bursting into tears. (laughs) (laughs) Or he'd just be
2: shouting, I told you so. (laughs) It's very possible.
0: (laughs) So the, um, the Chesterfield idea comes from that uh, mm-hmm. That the body has to be controlled, mm-hmm. right? And um, and again, kind of the instrument, is sort of the, um, the the making of an instrument of the body mm-hmm. in that way. So the public body in ways, and then we get to um, the Madame Reclamier painting,
2: um,
0: which then leads us into this other this other art. So it leads us to a place where we're finally talking about how um,
1: what sort of what happens to the body without again what he calls the metaphysical. Mm-hmm which I think I would call unity. I think what, that was where I got to finally, was like, I think when he says metaphysical most of the time, mm-hmm. I think what he means is unity, of like the understanding of like body and soul as yeah, a unity. Okay. okay, yeah,
0: I mean, and that he does talk sense. about the, the problematic separation of, mm-hmm. of um, body and soul mm-hmm. and how, yeah. that's, how that's problematic. And um, and then, which we recognize as um, as problematic, and um, and then he he's then he sort of pulls it apart some more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another place where visual art comes up um, is the painting, the Friedrich painting, Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog, which I think is familiar to most everybody, and so is um, is a, a good idea, like a good thing to talk about. Um, Thinking a little bit about the um, the wonder himself, this is the essay that's called "A Natural Scientist in Reverse." And so you have this gentleman um, out, and if you um, and so most of our well, a lot of our listeners um, of, of um, Brookwood and Avalon um, high school students will have somewhere in their house a copy of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which has on it this take on wander um, Above the Sea of Fog, with sort of a, a monster on the cover um, that's taking the place of the wanderer um, in that way, but that's that's based on that painting. Um, and so it made it the idea, too, of the, um, of the gentleman in nature for the day, right, and sort of how that works. Um, I don't know if you all have thoughts about that painting and how it's used, or any other place that you want to go with that.
1: David, I've
2: done a lot of talking. Oh. Uh, But you like this essay, and I uh, am not as familiar with it. But I can say something. Uh, I do. (laughs) Would you like me to pull up a picture? Yeah, that would be nice. Reading like the first, the paragraph, the entry paragraph. um, Yeah, you do get a sense where he's drawing on how we are separated from the natural world, and like the the main guy there is you know, didn't pick up his walking stick as he walked through the forest. Uh, you know, he's got all his clothes. Are t- it's a great line. He, um, he did not acquire his straight walking stick in some nearby forest, but instead had a master prepare it in a faraway city. Mm-hmm. Just as his clothes were tailored by the city tailor, his boots sewn by a city cobbler, and his hair pomaded by a city hairdresser. And which is like a great, like he's got for a walk in the country and he has like his perfect hair. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which is pretty great. You know, it's like, yeah, well. Uh, and so there's a sense in which it's interesting because he says, no Saint Jerome or Saint Anthony of Padua. Uh, certainly these two saints would not be so amazed by the landscape extending before them, nor would they lose themselves to such a degree in its beauty, which I'm not convinced they wouldn't. Um, mm-hmm. But for them, they would have had been able to understand the beauty, maybe, mm-hmm. is what he's saying. Mm-hmm. And the wanderer is caught off guard by it, that yeah. maybe he can't understand what he's seeing, or? Well, you know. I mean, he says that the painting, is. I mean, so Folgeny says that the painting is shot through with
0: longing, mm-hmm. right? And, and so, so you, and so there's this, this sort of desire, right?
2: And talks about the,
0: um, I mean, the idea upon regarding nature. Within, this is from um, Carl Gustav Carus, um, who says, within you a silent devotion is awoken you lose yourself in endless space your entire being is transfigured and purified and your own self disappears you are nothing god is all and that's mm-hmm. where in my mind i went to emerson mm-hmm. and um, but i think that um, so you have it sort of different kinds of reactions to mm-hmm. nature and and sort of this figure as you know not being of nature but of society mm. looking at nature and sort of um, how that works. Nature, this is um, a couple pages later. Next page. Um, nature, during the course of the 18th century, became ever more manifestly the object of rational and scientific thought, the result of which was the ever more regardless exploitation of nature with the aid of technology. Um, for the Romantics, in contrast, um, in, as it were, a counter-reaction, an ever-increasing desire arose to discover within nature the subject of the universe, the manifestation of aesthetic harmony of perfection that could not be circumscribed by reason as a kind of mystical identity. So I think that's a way of, of looking at it. Um, and also sort of, again, isolating this, this idea that um, anyone, anyone who wished who to find the proof of existence of, existence of God turned to nature, to and, nature so and so did anyone who wished to deny the existence <laughs> of God. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, it's true because as yeah. soon as you take something out of its created context, you can put any context you want onto it. Mm-hmm. As soon as nature wasn't God's creation, it was either something to study or it was something to replace God. Right. You can you can make it anything you want. Yeah. yeah. It's. I unfortunately thought a lot about the uh, um, Declaration of Independence. I was like, God of nature, and nature's God. <laughs> I'm like, we've got oh, wow. it all. Uh-huh. Because it, it's a big tent, everyone can be in it. Um, except he makes the point that I think is, is obvious in, in the painting that this man is going to leave. Yeah. Mm. That they're. The longing is really there, but the vulnerability of surrender is not. And Mm. Laszlo, Fodenny, talks about self-surrender, but that, I think, is not what needs to be surrendered. Like, the self doesn't need to be surrendered. The image of the self, Mm. the idea that you're going to be in nature with perfectly pomaded hair, Mm. is what has to go. That you, if you want to be in nature, you have to be as nature is, mm. and I think we hit this like so much with people and their like perfect Instagram pictures. Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. Like this is like old fashioned Instagram. Oh, but, but so this <laughs> like, is actually
2: one of my big problems with modernity, which you just talked about. Like you like this this dichotomy between man and nature, that was like, and, and people. So I get like really kind of bothered when. I, I get bothered by a lot of things but <laughs> with, and the this, understatement of the year this is going back to like you know this idea know. of western man and all this stuff but like people talk about indigenous cultures or tribal cultures having this sense of like humans as a part of nature and you know in communion with nature and all this stuff and I'm like well so did western man until mm-hmm. you know the enlightenment industrial revolution some point there was this fracture that happened you know where we, we never we no longer saw ourselves as like yes having dominion over nature right being which of course in the context in which we understand it means having to order nature properly for the flourishing of the uni- like the world we live in so um, like again you know like there is a place for caring about the environment in the catholic church there's a place for caring about god's creation and being stewards of it to ensure the flir- like the flourishing of the human person in the context of being one with nature. Mm-hmm. And I, I see like what you're talking about here where, yeah, you're gonna go back outside of nature, but then again, that, that bifurcation, you see it in this sense of like, we have human, na- the human the human person and then there's nature. And this bifurcated reality leads to this messed up view mm-hmm. of either we can do whatever we want with nature mm-hmm. or we just need to get like, right? So the human person is greater than nature and that means that he can treat it however he wants, you know, destroy it, whatever. And then, but then the opposite view is because we are so other than nature, we're a threat to nature. And mm-hmm. you see this playing out in modern society, right? We're like, instead of seeing us as harmony with nature, even in the city, mm-hmm. um, but still having to...
0: There's a stewardship yeah.
2: piece. Yeah. 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 That, well, I mean, yeah. isn't,
1: like, doesn't the enlightenment rationality mm-hmm. prevent stewardship? Because if yes. stewardship is, like, our guardianship mm-hmm. of something that is not ours you can't have hyper-rationalization with something that doesn't belong to you. Mm, mm-hmm. So, like, if, if you are, like, if you're going along the principles of the Enlightenment rational, like, ration is, rations, rationality is everything, mm-hmm. and through that we will always progress to something better, Right. then stewardship can't exist in that same realm. Mm-hmm. So, nature yeah. then does have to be either controlled mm-hmm. or it has to be essentially destroyed. Yeah. It either is your tool or it is your enemy.
2: And then the mm-hmm. reaction to that like, is destroy the humans. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, when you were talking about that. I or was thinking about that. Destroy culture, also. whatever mm. these activists are doing. Yeah. They think that, destroy oh gosh. that gosh. destroying, destroying a painting yeah. is.
0: I mean, I guess, is it, just, is it any
1: public spectacle? Or is it
0: like we must destroy <laughs> culture because culture is in contrast to nature? They, yeah. There know. seems
1: to be a, like, for the small subgroup, there seems to be a very insistent problem with visual art. And mm-hmm. a lot of their manifestos, every time they throw some soup on one of these things, is that the money that went into this and okay. protecting it uh. should have gone into this other thing. And I'm like, A, uh, hey, there's plenty of money. We can protect a lot of right, stuff. Not zero right. sum. it's not a zero-sum. It's <laughs> not a zero-sum. Right. And you're, like, but it does seem to be that, like, if art is an understanding of more than just the material moment, mm-hmm. which I think art is. Yeah. Right.
2: Well, it's a glimpse into the transcendent, right? Yeah, like, yeah. their
1: anger is, like, weirdly correctly placed. Right. Yeah. Like because they are so angry that um, this particular moment is destructive right. in their view.
2: But but you, you, you also see this right with like, you know, you go into like the very wealthy's house nowadays and it's pretty blank and, and bare and just, you know, Yeah, that's China's Gans's fault. Right. Though. But then well but it's also <laughs> this this I, like there's like a lot of things going in my mind right now. I'm trying to try and piece them all together. But, like this war on like art and you think about it, of, like you have people critique like the church and stuff like that but you know anyone can go to St. Peter's in Rome right mm-hmm. or anyone can go to the Basilica in D.C. like anyone mm-hmm. can go to these beautiful churches and have an experience of the transcendent right mm-hmm. you know but if you're saying if, if you make this more you moral, mean both
0: through art and through the higher purposes oh yeah the, and the liturgy yeah. and all that yeah. but yeah
2: I was thinking even just like you just wander in even if there's no yes. liturgy there's just this beauty yeah, yeah that just lifts you and you mm-hmm. think about you know the war on beautiful art is in a sense like like you were saying i know it's more on the transcendent because you like what do you mean like like the poor have this painting now Mm -hmm. you know like everyone has this painting everyone has this ability to experience something great yeah there's There's a a lot of talk
0: about um about like inclusion and exclusion in museums and churches that um like the um john john berger ways of seeing Right. Um, and, and, and I mean, so, so there's there's, a lot, there's been a lot of thought about this and about how people feel pu- pushed out in museums. Hmm. And um, and I think that um, the way that a museum is often designed to be like a cathedral, the instead of it being like, yeah, it's, it's designed, designed like a cathedral, cathedral. everybody yeah. can come. Right. <laughs> it's more like, yeah, it's designed like a cathedral. We feel pushed out. Mm-hmm. Oh well.
1: Yeah. Which so is why I honestly can like tell every single person who kind of expresses that feeling of Mm -hmm. like, I, I feel like maybe the church is not for me or, you know, I don't feel represented. I tell them like, go downtown, go to the Basilica and walk through the whole Mm -hmm. thing Mm -hmm. because our lady is (laughs) everywhere. There's a Mary for you. There's a Mary for you. (laughs) You can find her. (laughs) She's out there waiting for you, and we put them all in one place. And it's (laughs) like I think it is like the like one of the most beautiful experiences you can have is to Mm -hmm. walk through all of the basilica. I like to do it quietly by myself because I don't really like crowds, and I really did like that essay. Mm -hmm. Um, But to really see that, like this is for everyone, Mm -hmm. and everyone can be represented beautifully on their own terms and through themselves i mean so many of those artworks are from the countries they represent and Mm -hmm. from artists who are those people Mm -hmm. it's yeah and it's sort of a beautiful
0: beautiful dynamism dynamism between the individual and the um i mean you're saying like mm -hmm. the you know the the country that produced or Mm the particular strain of catholicism that produced the um the chapel or the the piece of art um, so you have this kind of play that I think Boldenyi would approve of mm-hmm. between yes. the individual and I'm reluctant to figure out which word to use, whether it's multitude or collective, uh, but not mob. Right? Well, the right. word yeah. so
3: is community. Right. right. Yeah. He has
1: all the other words and he never uses that one, yeah. which I think is very telling. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, is this another book? Are you trying to get me to buy the next mm-hmm. one? Um, where you yeah. talk about community yeah. because there has to be some human collective action that is good mm-hmm.
2: right yeah unity and distinction like the three persons of the trinity
1: yeah because i totally They're understand that <laughs> <laughs> and,
2: but, but this all goes also like the basilica and this was the the one i wanted to connect when we were yeah. talking about nature and the hyper-rationalism and all this but it goes back to that gnosticism right the complete mm-hmm. separation of the soul and the body you know like yeah but
1: wait is that what gnosticism is
2: Essentially, yeah. Oh yeah. man,
1: I've been thinking of something
2: else. Spirit, good, matter, bad.
1: Oh yeah. wow, but, I thought it was but, something really different. Yeah. Well,
2: oh come on, you went to a Dominican parish. The Dominicans who taught you are ashamed, right? They're they're so. Sad.
1: No, they're just really sad that mm. I lost a lot of that.
2: Because yeah. the albigensians were were um were, were Gnostics essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so you have like everything. It's all yeah. coming together now. He's like, oh yeah, okay, now I under- maybe understand what he's talking about. Um, but where like you have. Ev- like the war on the body, without mm-hmm. even knowing there's a war on the body, uh, and like you can destroy the body um, because it's not really you or something. because yeah. like and you can treat the body or you can treat nature however you want because you're really this spirit. Dis- you're a
0: disembodied, sort of. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and so that's kind of the problem, problem with all of these movements is that they have this. They don't have, the union of body mm-hmm. and spirit. And so like, the people throwing the paint on, and the bareness, and the lack of beauty, and all these things are really just tied up in this war on the flesh, mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. Like this, and this misunderstanding of the human person as like a body-soul composite.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I think it's interesting. We, we, so we recognize the problem that Folgeny identifies, even if we're not sure. I mean, like, maybe he's making a little bit of a cartoon of the Enlightenment. Like, maybe there's some, you know, oh, maybe I'm a little cartoon. totally down with him or, trashing
2: or, yeah. <laughs> 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 he's, not, he's not
0: being totally, like on in terms of like the way he's talking about hegel or Mm, any of these other elements i mean we we recognize as true the um the problem that he identifies and i think we recognize as interesting and evocative that his sort of walk through romantic thought and um and other kinds of answers or um or responses to this problem and we land in the place where he could land, um, but he doesn't quite get it. He talks about the divine. He talks about the transcendent. He talks about the loss of um, the, you know, the connection to something beyond um, you know, the temporal world and, um, or beyond reason, but as he talks about it. Um, but he doesn't quite get there. And so I think that this book is useful to us as a way to, to kind of open up the questions, questions and to talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. different. Here are some responses. Here are some things that have happened in the culture that we can look at, and here's a, here's a kind of reaction and a sensibility that we can, can um, that we, we can engage and with and in order to to, um, to, to maybe land, to land someplace, someplace slightly different, different.
1: Mm-hmm. or maybe someplace that he will land eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um. I. It, I wonder if this is a little bit like meeting C.S. Lewis while he was younger. Mm. Like, maybe we're just seeing somebody at a different point in his journey than we mm. maybe think he's going to get to. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think you do have a lot of people like this in the world who are wanting to ask these questions. Yeah. Like, they feel what is happening to themselves. And I think his explanation of, like, I don't want to say picking it apart because he's very, like, against people picking things apart. Mm -hmm. But he really does go into, like, how many layers there are into some things that we kind of assume are very easy. Mm -hmm. Like, he, and, you know, he just says, happiness is an interesting concept. And then he's like, and here's how complicated it is. Mm -hmm. Um, I, for myself, am willing to admit, like, how much I've made life into a motto. Where I'm like, yeah. I have this and this and this mm-hmm. and that's it, and I don't have to think about new things. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, but shouldn't I? Yeah. Or maybe I don't have those things that I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm accidentally agnostic and didn't realize it. Well, and like <laughs> the, the degree of openness
0: that, that he seems to, to call for is exhausting. For is exhausting. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so I, I think, think that there's that too. That, that at, at some, some point, um, at some, some point, people, people get tired, and so, so they say this and this, but not that and that.
1: Well, and I can't remember which essay is in, but he talks about the romantics as the desire to escape the prosaic parts of life. Mm. And Mm. so, like, I think that is totally, I hate to say natural, but that does happen. Like, Mm -hmm. you can't be this thinky and self-aware all the time. You would never go to the grocery store. (laughs) But I understand people not wanting to go to the grocery store. Right. So, like
2: i just have a friend he's getting his doctorate and he's like taught he like talks about academics and <laughs> <laughs> like basically saying the same thing you're saying. Like, like, they're incapable
0: of going to the grocery store? Or, in a sense, yeah. right? Like, there's
2: kind of this, like, and, and I'm like, he's he just talks about it. And I'm like, man, you need a hobby. And he's like, they don't have any. And he's like, talking about, like, sitting through, like, meetings and all these things. And he said he just finished a C.S. Lewis' Space Trilogy. And he's like, that hideous strength takes on a whole new meaning after you've spent time in academia. <laughs> like, <laughs> And I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like, it's like I was in one of the meetings from the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, like I think yeah. you're right. Like there is a.
1: Yeah, it, it would be exhausting to be like this all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we, we can, can be like this some time. of the time. Yeah. And right. um, and that's um, and that's entirely um, I, I think what's, what's called for, right? Um, to um, to not give way to the culture's um, hyper rational mm-hmm. sort of push and instead to take different approaches that are, um, that are open to the mystical again, like with our or, um, I maybe mean, not quite like with our toad, but, uh, the, uh, but the, but the, the mystical or the transcendent in, in one way or another in order to, um, in order to have like a richer, more multidimensional, um, experience of life. And, and then you know, know beyond, beyond that, that of course we, we um we, we would we'd we'd push, push one, one more step. step
2: yeah yeah well it, it's recovering he's, he's trying to recover what it is to be human mm-hmm. yeah i think it's ultimately he sees how unsatisfactory um the enlightenment idea of the human person is he sees how unsatisfactory the romantics are he sees how unsatisfactory all these other people are but then there's something where it's like okay well being human has to mean something mm-hmm. yeah and he, and he he's like talks about how it's clearly a union of body mind of a Soul and body. Like the human person isn't just one or the other, you know. And so, yeah, there is that that um that sense. where yeah, you do need to reflect on reality and consider it. But then again, it's like with the sense that there is an ultimate meaning. Like mm-hmm. having that experience of the transcendent then helps you understand or leads you to contemplate. Okay, there is a purpose here. There is a meaning here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well,
1: isn't that what you were talking about the other day when you were talking about? I want to say peeper and i think i might be wrong his Bieber. definition of leisure yeah sorry. oh yeah. yeah okay i really do have to read that at some point um but yes that leisure is the isn't leisure the contemplation of like the yeah. human person and yeah. like, or just
2: like yeah eternal like truths right like okay transcendence it's the contemplation yeah. of transcendence essentially so maybe he's pointing
1: yeah. that we need to reclaim leisure that like We've we've really okay. lost yeah. we've yeah. lost that in both cacophony and isolation. Yeah. Which is the smartphone. Yeah. And mm. there's, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: yeah. And there's yeah, it's it's he talks about that in his in Pieper talks about that in his book on hope and how like yeah, the, the modern age, our age is gripped in despair. And yes. leisure is in a way the antidote to despair. Uh, because and the people who despair never make time for leisure. Mm. You know, and, and so like we think mm-hmm. of despair only as sadness, but he's like, no, you could have someone who seems very happy, or seems very like you know like the sense of happiness. Oh, okay. yeah, the, the kind grips, of happiness that. Yeah, who's possible. in the grips yeah. of despair because they have to keep busy, they have to keep doing something, they have to. Yeah. They can never sit still. Yeah, you know? I mean,
1: those people always read a little bit manic. Mm-hmm.
2: You mm-hmm. you
1: get that feeling of being spun up when mm-hmm. you are around them. Um, hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's, that's the next podcast. Yeah. <laughs>
2: anyway. It's so a good place to stop. <laughs> thank you, Sherry. Thank you, Sherry. Oh, thank,
0: thank you for, for coming and, and talking, uh, and for, for reading this book. book. Uh, uh, thank you for, for listening, listening to the Life of the Mind podcast from, from Brooklyn, Brooklyn and Avalon schools. schools. I'm Sherry Walsh here on the Full episode with um, um, Andre Francois and David Bose. Our, our producer is Quentin Walsh. Walsh. Our, theme our theme music is by Fabian Tell. Views expressed our are the participants' own, or maybe a thought exercise.